got an email last week from Jimmy Roll of the band Beware of Blast, letting me know about a brand new single, and you're listening to it right now. It's called Special Forces. You can find them at bewareofblast.bandcamp.com. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. We're going to use this song as this week's music for episode 544 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. It's Monster Kid Radio. I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. It's been, what, a week? I've missed you. I've missed you. Thanks for coming back. Anyway, here's what's going on this week. So, I feel like lately there's been a lot of, well, we were going to do this, but then this came up. And we were going to do that, and then that came up. Well, this is another one of those situations. So, I think some of you, most of you probably know that I was having some computer problems. My hard drive was starting to fail. A very generous listener sent me a brand new hard drive. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I know I thank you personally, but thank you, thank you, thank you for sending that to me. And then I took the computer and the hard drive down to Tom's place. Tom is the man. He's the one who does all the uh, computer work for me uh, free of charge. He's awesome. And Tom, thank you, thank you, thank you. So between the time that I recorded this conversation about the movie Spider Baby with Chris Franklin from the House of Franklin sign and a few other projects, and the time I took the computer down to Tom's and then brought it back up here, something happened to that recording. I don't know what happened to it. It's somewhere. I'm going to check one more place, but it's getting late and I want to get an episode of the podcast out to you. So here we go. Here it is. It's episode 554 of the podcast where we're going to be talking about a blast from the past. About a year and a half ago, in January of 2020, I was a panelist at a local convention. The convention was called Fandom PDX, and we wanted to record a live episode of Monster Kid Radio there. Well, kind of, sort of live. We recorded an episode of Monster Kid Radio there, and it wasn't just me. It was Chris McMillan and David Heath, who I ended up calling Monster Kid Radio Irregulars. So this was January of 2020. There were some things happening in the world back then and some other things that weren't happening in the world back then that influenced the conversation that we had that day. It was a fun panel. I remember having a really good time there. Fandom PDX is not a venue or an event that I have normally been to. But I was happy to be there. This was before the world shut down. This was before the pandemic hit full force. So things were, I don't know, different. And going through and listening to this conversation that David and Chris and I had was, man, it just made me miss that, you know? I've been missing going to conventions anyway, and I still don't feel 100% safe about getting on an airplane, and it is what it is, and things are so bad up here in Oregon, but... I still miss it, and I missed the Lovecraft Film Festival because I didn't go to that. I'm not going to Monster Bash. Thank you, by the way, to those of you who are going to Monster Bash who've offered to record content for the podcast at the Bash. I'm sorry I haven't written you back yet by email, but I will within the next day or two about that. Don't let me forget. Anyway, um, it just made me miss going to conventions, and... I hope that uh, if you're missing going to conventions, that listening to this panel from Fandom PDX 2020 kind of scratches that convention itch that you may have. Convention itch sounds like something you pick up at a convention after three days, so I take that back. But I think you understand 
what I'm getting at here. So that's what's happening this week. Now, I do have Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland about Spider-Baby, but because I'm not doing the Spider-Baby episode this week, I'm going to sit on that. We're going to bank that until I finally do get Spider-Baby out there. And we do have Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule review, so that's going to be coming up here shortly as well. Slightly shorter episode because I did kind of just scrape some content together. I do hope you enjoy it, and we'll catch up with you at the end of the episode. Here we go. Welcome to an evening with Karloff, the master of menace in five fright-filled features. Watch breathlessly as the coffin opens to release the terror duck. <laughs> it's only a gallon bowls, the raven. Join Boris Karloff in the most gruesome day of the undead, Black Sabbath. And there are two more blood-chilling delights. Die, monster, die, and who knows? You may die, laughing at the comedy of terrors. Five of Karloff's creepiest capers in nightmare colors. And you are invited. Since the time of Babylon, I've walked the earth, challenging the most venturesome of men. I am this sinuous creature, a killer cat, and I'm a woman, seductive, tantalizing, inviting a lover's caress. But to caress me is to play with death. I am the mystery woman of the ages, feline. Fascinating. To know me is to know all my loves, all the lives I've lived, the deaths I've caused. I am the essence in woman that no man can resist. I am Cat Girl. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, Plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. 
Having battled Ultraman to a draw, Gomura burrows underground, leaving the Science Patrol to plan their defense of Osaka in the Monster Highness Part 2, the series' 27th episode. When Gomura resurfaces in the middle of the city, the SSSP strikes a major blow against the monster, severing its gigantic tail and attaching a transmitter beacon to the kaiju, moments before it digs back into the earth. As the electronic signal reveals Gomura's subterranean direction, Hayata discovers that he's lost the beta capsule. Unbeknownst to him, it's still in the possession of Osamu, the boy known as the Monster Highness. Taking advantage of his parents' argument, Osamu slips out, determined to return the beta capsule to its rightful owner. The self-defense force attempts to protect Osaka Castle from Gomura's rampage, but to no avail. The creature completely dismantles the national treasure, just as Osamu delivers the beta capsule to Hayata. Can Ultraman stop Gomura this time? Or will the monster's reign of terror continue? The Monster Highness Part 2 delivers the goods for fans of Monster Mayhem, ratcheting up the tension to the shocking conclusion of the destruction of Osaka Castle, a beautiful, elaborate miniature just begging to be smashed. Monster Gomera left an indelible mark on the Ultraman franchise, reappearing numerous times across the decades, right up to 2020's Ultraman Z. Nothing was quite as surprising as the two Ultra Galaxy Mega Monster Battle series, which began in 2007, in which an alien humanoid transforms into Gomera to fight other kaiju, becoming a heroic figure in the process. And for vinyl collectors, there are some gorgeous shots of Osamu's Bullmark Ultra Q figures, which include Garamon, Gomez, Goro, and Namagon, a delightful example of product placement that later series would lean into with great gusto. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. Time for a mystery box. This week, you can help support the stream. You can help support what we do here on Twitch by making a $3 purchase, buying us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash monsterkidradio. Every $3 coffee you purchase earns you one entry into a drawing for a Monster Kid Radio mystery box. And I promise you, there will be no tentacles in the box. But there will be a DVD. There will be some other fun stuff. Something from Monster Kid Radio for you. All you have to do is buy a $3 coffee over at ko-fi.com slash monsterkidradio. Multiple entries are permitted. You need not be present to win when we announce the winner on October 16th. Thanks for supporting Monster Kid Radio and the Monster Kid Movie Club. Good luck. Volcanic fury of Vesuvius. From the ravaged city of Pompeii, across 2,000 years, comes one of the strangest mysteries of all time. The Curse of the Faceless Man. 
power of his love spanned the centuries, crossed the dividing line between yesterday and today, between the past and the present, even between life and death. supernatural powers of the evil eye claim still another victim. Its malevolent enjoyment of tantalizing torture hangs threateningly over John Saxon, Letitia Roman, and Valentina Corteza. Oh, she was always against me. She hated me. Madness. And the maddening aura that destroys reason fills their every breath with the smell of death. Have you ever seen a murder before? No, no, I've never seen anything like that. Never. Oh, stop playing games, will you, Landini? I don't know what you're trying to do, but I know that you're, you're involved in this. Perhaps Nora has seen the killer. But how do we know that he hasn't seen her? The evil eye, like relentless tides, reaches out for them. And they defiantly hold ecstasy and horror in their arms and touch lips with terror while the evil eye watches their every kiss and invades their subconscious. panel classic sci-fi for modern audiences that's what it says in the program but this is also a live episode a live recording of the monster kid radio podcast which is a podcast that i've been producing i looked it up just a second ago since 2013 uh which is a lot longer than i actually remember yeah that's <laughs> that's a pretty good track record so monster kid radio is a weekly show where i talk about nothing but classic monster movies or as i say in the intro Classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I love classic monster movies, classic sci-fi, classic fantasy. Uh, my name is Derek M. Cook. I'm the producer and creator of the show. Um, and I am joined today by Monster Kid Radio irregulars, <laughs> David Heath and Chris McMillan. David, tell us about you. My name is David Heath, and I have a blog called Dave's Corner of the Universe, which <laughs> we cover all sorts of strange things. And Chris. And I'm Chris. Uh, I write and uh, publish the uh, Shadow Over Portland blog where you'll find information about 
all the sci-fi, fantasy, and horror events happening in the Pacific Northwest. I go from Ashland, Oregon to Vancouver, BC. I, I find things happening in um, Idaho. This event was covered on my site. Um, I cover everything. So if you're ever looking for something to do that's genre-related, stop by shadowoverportland.blogspot.com. Now, there are links to both of their projects over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. I've got some business cards up here if you are interested. If you want to talk monsters with me, I'm game. No, I, I love this. I love talking monsters with people. So I have business cards, too. You have Thank some cards? you for reminding right me. Right on. Well, he's got some cards, soon. He's got the flyers. We'll get to all that again at the end, though. Let's talk about what we're talking about today, classic sci-fi for modern audiences. Now, on Monster Kid Radio, I define loosely classic film as being from the silent era up to around 1968 and the reason for that is 1968 is when night of the living dead came out and that kind of changed the game when it came to genre cinema so that's kind of our soft cutoff that said lately i've been covering a few films from the 70s uh, on the show as well but for this conversation we're, we're kind of sticking to that soft cutoff kind of a well that uh cut off <laughs> uh and what we're doing today is a top three list or episode, which is something I do on the show quite a bit. I've asked both David and Chris to come up with their top three favorite classic sci-fi films that they think would be applicable or enjoyable by well, modern audiences. And then I also have a list as well. I'm sure there's going to be some overlap. We didn't really consult each other before this, and I did that on purpose because I wanted it to be kind of you know fresh and spontaneous and all that, you know. Besides, I don't prep on the podcast, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm going to go first because I want to end on one of the guests and kind of let them have the, the, the final say, uh, or at least the final film. So for me, I would probably go with something, a double feature, actually. I'm going to cheat. It's my show. I'm allowed to cheat. I'm going to go with a double feature. I'm going to say that in 1959, there was a film called The Wasp Woman, and in 1960, there's a film called The Leech Woman. Now, The Wasp Woman is directed by Roger Corman. The Leech Woman is directed by Edward Dean. Both of these films deal with aging, and in particular, women aging. Uh, and The Wasp Woman, the lead character played by Susan Cabot, uh, plays the owner, magnate of a beauty supply company. She's also the main spokesperson, a model. Uh, and she starts to get older, and they start noticing the sales start to go down. And she begins this journey to try to find a way to de-age, to present herself as younger, to not just help the company, but to help herself. It really kind of addresses ageism, uh, the beauty standards that we put on women, that sort of thing. And the leech woman does something very similar as well when Colleen Gray's character starts looking for ways to make herself younger. Uh, this is another film that deals with what happens when women get older, standards of beauty, are older women as attractive slash successful as the younger models, I suppose. And they're just really interesting films to look at and, and think about what they were dealing with at that time, 1959, 1960, and see that these are issues that we still talk about today. And that's one of the things that I love about classic cinema overall, is that you can look at these films, see what they were dealing with at the time, look at them as like mini documentaries almost, but then kind of pull from them and see are there still things that we're dealing with today? Are there still messages here? Or are they still entertaining? So that's my number three pick. Let's go to David for his. I picked for number three a movie from uh, 1960, The Angry Red Planet. Ooh. Now, in the beginning of this movie, for the first third, it is generic movie. It's the first third. It is so generic that 
it's the spaceship takes off and it's photographs of a Vanguard spaceship. Uh, the cast, it's the captain who, of course, is 20 years older than the female crew member, but she's immediately going to fall in love with him. They've got the scientist with the Van Dyke beard that smokes the pipe and this comic relief sidekick. The one interesting thing in the beginning is it's a flashback, that the ship comes back and you know that half the crew died and one of them dying, and that's sort of telling the story what, uh, what happened to them. But it's not until they land on Mars that it gets interesting. And there were two reasons for this. One is that they used a process on the film which they called uh, Cinemagic. It's a mixture of tinting the film red, but also drawings mixed in with regular filming. And when the alien looks through the window in the port window, it's creepy to this day. It is almost this negative looking. And when they travel through Mars, you know you're no longer in Kansas. It's something different, completely changed, and it's this dark red. Now, I saw this as a kid. I saw it on a black and white TV. I honestly didn't know that until about 10 years ago that it had the red, and I had to see it again. <laughs> that sounds awesome. But the other thing is, it's got the best monsters. It has this giant fern slash sea anemone that reaches out and grabs people. It has the closest thing I've ever seen in a 20th century of a Lovecraft monster. And the name of this monster is the um, Bat Lobster Spider Monster. And it's just incredible. It's 40 feet tall here. <laughs> and how weird is it? It is on the cover of the Misfits album, They Walk Among Us. So you know if the Misfits thought it was cool and weird, it's cool and weird. And then finally they have this giant amoeba that swallows up. And the, you literally, I remember the kid freaking out because you see this guy disintegrate. And it's just the monsters are the best. So, you know, you got to watch the first third of the movie because of plot development or character development. You don't know who these people are. But once they land on Mars, it just becomes next stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're right. That that creature is weird. I, it, Yeah. I, I almost printed it out. I should have, but... <laughs> But I mean, he's not kidding. They really do call it the the, the bat lobster rat. They, yeah, it doesn't have funny. a fancy name, but it is. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't considered the Lovecraftian element of it though. That's it's interesting. I'm gonna have to rewatch it. Darn. Mm -hmm. Oh no, not another rewatch. All right. All right, Chris. What's your number three? Okay. Well, can I do a double feature? Of course. All right. Uh, yeah. I'm going kaiju with uh, my my first pick. Um, obviously, you gotta go with the '54 Gojira, not the. American cut-up, reorganized version with journalist Steve Martin, who I keep <laughs> waiting to hear say, and yes, I am a wild and crazy guy. You know, I would love to have seen that. But anyway, um, I'm talking the original Japanese version um, included with, I think it was 61 or 62 Mothra. And the reason I picked those is early kaiju films are never, you know, they're, they're about more than just the monsters stomping through Tokyo. There's always a story behind them. It's pretty obvious with um, Godzilla, you know, that this is a retelling of what happened in, in, to Japan during World War II. Because when you start looking at the way they cut this movie together, you've got the fishing boat accident that Godzilla radiates the boat. Well, that's based on a Japanese fishing boat that got too close to an American 
nuclear test in the Pacific, and it did a lot of damage to people. Um, when you look at the aftermath of Godzilla stomping through Tokyo, you know, I mean, it looks very like it looks like an atomic bomb went off there, and so you know that. But also, what I find fascinating about it is Dr. Shigawa. I'm probably mispronouncing that name terribly, and I apologize. But um, he's the one person who has the weapon that will destroy Godzilla. He's got the oxygen destroyer, you know. Drop it in Tokyo Bay, wipes out the oxygen in the water, wipes out Godzilla. It's 50 science, you go with that. Um, but he's worried about releasing it. He's worried about what's going to happen when people see what this, this, wep this weapon can do. He wants to have some you know, better purpose for it, but he knows that once governments see it, well, that's it. It's going to be a weapon, and that's a driving force to the climax. You know, will he do it? Can he be persuaded to do it? And how is he going to keep it a secret? And I'm not going to spoil that one um, because he does. Um, but it's it, but it's a really good, not only, a, a, you know, it's not only a story about, you know, that that brings up the fears of atomic warfare. It's also about the scientists who create this stuff, who maybe, you know, create something that they know can be used as a weapon, but they also know it can be used for good. And there's that writing line, like, where do we go? How do I, how do I channel it? Because I know the world or world governments won't. Um, as far as Mothra goes, that is a great look at the exploitation of, uh, indigenous cultures if you think about it because you know they go to this island where these people were rescued and they all thought they were going to be dead from radiation because that's where they were testing and they're like no we were saved by the villagers and given the special juice um that must have kept the radiation away so people go investigate they find a culture there along with two tiny little fairy women that um are part of I would say the religious ceremony they have for their for their god Mothra, and of course you know they, you know the the group leaves and it's like oh yeah we'll leave you guys alone we're not going to say anything. Of course, the evil capitalist goes back, grabs the two women, and starts putting them in a fancy sideshow where they're singing, um, and of course. Guess who that ticks off? Mothra. And I've heard some people criticize it. It's like, why do they have to have all these people killed by Mothra in her quest to get her people back? And it's like, well, because we were complacent in this person's sideshow. People would go see the sideshow. There were a few that were trying to prevent it, but most people were like, yeah, whatever. And the government's like, oh, it's okay. We don't care. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a really good look at at how indigenous people can be exploited and also how nature, if you look at Gaia as mother nature, because in the uh, Japanese version, she is referred to as mother nature will come back and bite us in the butt for it, which is kind of what's happening right now. And you know, especially for Australia, I mean, geez. So I think those two both have relevance for today for those reasons. I want to comment on something you said at the beginning of this that the older kaiju films, you can really start seeing a lot of these messages. And that's one of the things that I love about the early Japanese monster movies, that you can see a lot of that. Uh, and they continue that. Now, sometimes you might get something like 
but I can't think of any off the top of my head that don't have it. But like even if something as recent as like Shin Godzilla, the last time Jap- Jap- uh, Japan did a Godzilla, oh that's gun, right, yeah, you can see a lot of stuff beneath the surface. Yeah, it's a great giant monster movie, but there's also a lot of commentary about how their government works and the bureaucracy of everything and the red tape getting in the way of everything. So there's a lot of stuff going on there, but then it's also just a giant monster movie, and that's cool too. Well, and also once again that goes back to the atomic weapon thing yes. because in Shin Godzilla they're going to drop the bomb on. Tokyo to take out Godzilla and every Japanese official does their best to prevent that because they're like this has happened before we don't want it again right you so know no so we're gonna go to our number twos now I don't know if anybody here has ever listened to an episode of my podcast if you haven't please check it out if you have I apologize for talking about a movie that I happen to bring up on that show pretty much every other week my absolute favorite film of all time is 1954's Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes, it's a monster movie. Yes, it's a horror movie. But it's also a science fiction film. It would be my number one, but some things have happened recently to make me kind of change this a little bit. Creature from the Black Lagoon, 1954. Universal likes to tell us that it's part of the monster cycle, even though it came out a good 10 years after the last classic monster film came out from Universal. It really is kind of more of a blend between Universal's classic monster era and their sci-fi era with their giant bugs and things like that. It is directed by Jack Arnold, who was an amazing science fiction director at the time. You can tell it's a Jack Arnold film because it starts with a science lesson. (laughs) Every Jack Arnold science fiction film from this era, there's always a little bit of science thrown in. And it's 50s science, so it's a little... Well, and they also add in some of the biblical creation. There's a little bit of that in there, too. which Which I thought was really interesting. Sorry. No, no, no. It stars Richard Carlson, Richard Denning, and Julie or Julia Adams. She plays Kay Lawrence. The other two are a couple of other doctors that go to the Black Lagoon to uh, see what this creature thing is all about. There's some evidence that there might be another life form living in this area that's brought back to the Institute somewhere in South America. They put a team together. They go out to see what this thing is. They run into the Gill Man. And instead of doing the smart thing, Ultimately, they antagonize it. There's a little bit of Beauty and the Beast storyline going on in here as well. There's some environmental commentary made here. Uh, there is a moment where Kay Lawrence, Julie Adams' character, flicks a cigarette uh, when she's done with it off the edge of the boat, and you see it kind of sink down into the bottom of the lagoon, and there's a gill man watching. So, I mean, I'm sure this wasn't necessarily intentional at the time, but as somebody who deals with a reality of climate change and what's going on in the environment today and pollution and all that. It's hard not to see that scene and say, hey, there's something there. The other reason I mentioned this film, and another reason why I love it so much, is the design of the monster itself. It is a full body suit. It is gorgeous. It is a work of art. It was designed by Millicent Patrick, a woman who was working in the makeup department at Universal at the time even though she didn't get credit for it. It hasn't been until relatively recently, within the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years, that her name even became known to a lot of people. Uh, Bud Westmore took credit for the design of the monster suit. And I'd want to take credit for it, too. Except I'm not a jerk and, you know, sexist. There's Um, there's reasons for it. I'll I'll, I'll mention it a sec. There's two suits, right? There are two suits because there are two actors. There was a swimmer who played the underwater gill man and then a guy up on land who had a good five, if not more, inches on the guy. So they had to design two different suits. Basically, you can tell which suit, which actor it is by counting the number of ridges in the chest. If there's more, you know it's the bigger guy. He's played by Ben Chapman. 
the Gill Man Underwater is played by Rico Browning, who is still with us today. Uh, he also has a long career as a stuntman, worked on a bunch of James Bond movies, worked on Caddyshack, did a lot in the film industry. But as monster kids, we know him as the Gill Man, and he's pretty much the last living universal monster uh, portrayer at this point. The music is also phenomenal, even though it gets a little over the top, and some people kind of poke fun at it, and I think that's something else that I'd like to mention about just classic sci-fi in general. We all know that by today's standards, yeah, sometimes they might be a little cheesy, but you kind of have to look past that, and I think the movies that we're talking about here, so far anyway, I don't know what he's got for his number two, uh, <laughs> you look past some of the cheesy effects that may not have aged as well, and you can still see something solid in What's your number two, man? So my number two is, as far as I know, the first long-length or full-length science fiction movie, and that's Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Ooh. And, okay, this is where you think I'm a heathen, because I first saw the 1984 Gorgio Mortar version where they had added rock and roll music. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's Freddie Mercury, Bonnie Tyler, Adam Ant. I mean, it was the top names of 1984. They also cut an hour off of the movie, but that was my first experience. They also tint it so that there's scenes, they don't colorize it, but there'll be scenes with green and blue. And this movie really does, I think, influence. Has anybody or here, have you ever seen uh, Metropolis? You've probably seen some aspect of it because it has these huge, giant, mile-high skyscrapers. If you've seen um, the uh, Queen uh, video, um, Radio Gaga, they use scenes from this. They have this scene where most people have seen where this woman, this basically robot, turns into a woman. And this robot is kind of what they base the concept art of C-3PO on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's also very German. It's very 1920s. It's beautiful. It's very, and it's about class structure, where you have all these workers that have to look down. You know, it's even described, they don't even smoke. They have no entertainment. And then you have this rich class that is basically, all they do is party. But neither one's happy. And they sort of have this messiah figure to kind of combine them. But there's a mad scientist. And I think... That's kind of where they got Doc Brown from. This look, crazy hair. But this, remember, this was filmed. That. That this was filmed sense. in 1927. I'm watching it in 1989, the first time. I had just for the third time read Neuromancer, the cyberpunk novel, and then I see this guy's got this glove, and I go, "Gee, that looks like a cyber arm." And you find out that Lang's wife wrote the novelization before two years before they released the movie. No, this is a cyber arm. This is something that I associate with that he lost his arm making the robot and he had to pick a robot arm. This is something I, 1990s, you know, cyberpunk, and we see it in 1927. In fact, if you go, my favorite, one of my favorite websites is TV Tropes. It marks 20 tropes that it is either the codifier or the, or the, the ancient, the oldest example. So this is like where modern sci-fi tropes come from. It's a beautiful film. And it's available all over. I mean, some of the movies that we've talked about here are in the public domain. So you can find them online. No. 
Now, they Metropolis yeah. is okay. fascinating. Were you, you want to talk about that? Or? No, you go ahead. Okay. You probably explain it better than I can. So Metropolis, when it was originally released, was really long. But then some edited versions started making their way out there, and the original version was presumed lost for a long time. And it kind of made parts of the movie not really make a lot of sense, really. There, there are some weird jumps that happened. Fortunately, several years ago, they found a copy. It was in Brazil? Argentina. Argentina. They found a copy down in Argentina <laughs> of the entire thing. And Wasn't that one a 16-millimeter version? It's a 16-millimeter, yeah. 16 yeah. and it has since been restored, released on Blu-ray. If you can see the complete version of Metropolis, I mean, Monster Kid Radio approves. It and, is amazing. And what I was going to say, though, is that at one time, it was public domain. But there has been a case that's yeah. changed, so it is actually no longer public domain. That said, you can still find yeah, you versions still find of it all over the place mm -hmm. if you go looking for it. And so I wanted to throw one other story. Sure. Sometimes people who are evil try to take your art and make it evil. And so Goebbels was actually went oh. to Lang and said, you know what, this is so good, we will forgive the fact that you're Jewish. The next day, he got on a boat and left him. He knew what was happening, and he didn't want to be part of what happened in Germany. So the next day, he came to New York because he knew what it was, and he wasn't going to sell out his heritage or his art. Were you going to say something? Yeah, I did want to mention something yeah. about uh, the creature. Um, oh, the, okay. The music. The other thing about the music you're going to notice, I mean, there's the classics thing. Da-da-da, da-da-da. <laughs> If you watch a lot of classic universal horror movies, they use things like a sound library, and they just go, oh, this will fit in this thing. So if you watch um, um, It Came From Outer Space, they've got that slight da-da-da there. And then, of course, it's just totally out of place in the um, American release of King Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> I don't know why they put it in that one, but wow, that sounded weird. Yeah. Um, the other thing is about Bud Westmore, and this is not my defense of Bud Westmore, mind you, but he took credit for everything. Yeah. It wasn't just Millicent Patrick's work. The suit designers who you know would work on the suit, you know, sculpting it, um, he took credit for that. If someone showed up with a camera, he would just move them out of the way and look like he was doing something there. Um, I know it seems weird. I saw your, the look on your face, but I do have an explanation. I I, I do have a theory of mine that explains why. Um, if you read the, uh, what was it, the Mighty Westmores or the something like, it was an autobiography done by one of the Westmore makeup artists from, you know, the 30s through the 70s. Bud Westmore basically got his job as studio head at Universal away from his brother. There were five brothers and one of them was taking over directing who got what. Well, Universal was going to hire one of the brothers, but the brother who's kind of directing everything didn't want that. And I'm sorry, I'm blanking on their names. I should have written them down. But anyway, the guy who was trying to get Bud into Universal basically sabotaged his own brother's job interview <laughs> because he knew he was a recovering alcoholic, took him out the night before, Got him drunk, so he showed up at the interview drunk. Now, at the time, everybody wanted a Westmore as the head of their makeup department. So they're like, well, who you got? Well, it's my brother, Bud. And that's how Bud Westmore got his job. And Bud Westmore, no one's really sure if he was in on it, but he certainly knew about it. 
So I think part of the reason he was trying to get all of that was his insecurity on how he got the job and trying to show, no, I can do this. And so anytime there was a chance to take credit, he would grab it. So in case people were thinking, oh, he's just going after Millicent Patrick, no, he went after everyone's. Yeah, uh, the Westmores, uh, the dynasty of the Westmores when it comes to special makeup effects, special makeup, and just makeup in general, and classic Hollywood, I mean, it continues today. Was it Michael Westmore that worked on some of the Star Trek stuff? I mean, they, yeah. yeah, I mean, the Westmore family is linked with makeup. But Westmore did the uh, monster design in Leech Woman, one of the movies I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Or at least he's credited with. Yeah. <laughs> and isn't, isn't there Westmore involved in that makeup uh, reality show face Yeah, off? it's no yeah. longer going, but yeah, um, the, the woman host was a Westmore. So, my number one pick. And like I said, this was not going to be my number one until... Just a couple of days ago, to be completely honest. And I don't want to get political. This isn't about politics. But with us killing the Iranian general, basically, um, and and all the headlines, you know, World War III is coming, whatever. And I don't know if it is or not. But it does get me to start thinking about the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still. So from 1951, it's directed by Robert Wise. Michael Rennie, Patricia Neal are the stars in it. Um, it's had a massive influence on cinema just in general. I mean, it's it's incredibly well shot, produced, uh, directed, written, acted. It's got some incredible music that uses a theremin. Really, I think it's the film that popularized theremins and, and made theremins as, well, synonymous with science fiction movies. And right? it works real well. It in works the movie. incredibly yeah. well. It also has... The Clouds Abroad and Nick line that gets aped by yeah. Sam Raimi in Army of Darkness. Uh, it did get remade with Keanu Reeves, but we're not talking about it. No, yeah. please yeah. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. 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 Interesting theremin fact, though. Yes. Theremin was a Russian scientist yes. who was a spy. <laughs> and he actually made several different listening devices, including the famed one that was in the, the seal of the Russian version of the Boy Scout that hung in the... Uh, Moscow embassy for so long. <laughs> he, he also apparently did do some spy work when he was part of a, a economic congress in New York. Learning how to play a theremin, well, I suppose owning one is one of the things on my bucket list. The You're movie not itself, the only one. Yeah. <laughs> the movie itself, it's an iconic story. Aliens come down and tell us, "Hey, get your act together, or you're going to end up getting destroyed." And that's kind of. I think a story and maybe a, something that we all really ought to think about. <laughs> I don't think they were going to destroy us. They were only going to destroy us if we went into space. They didn't we, say, well, and I didn't, yeah, I mean, you're on you're on the path of destruction. Yeah, and if you blow yourselves up, we're cool with that. Yeah. Just don't bring it up here. Get your stuff together, man, basically. And as they're trying to give that message, they shoot the guy. I mean, the, the humans shoot him. I mean, what does that say about humanity and, and, and how we feel about outsiders coming in and the idea of peace and not understanding what what that is. It, it is an affecting movie that means a lot to me anyway. Uh, I was going to mention it in my list today, but uh, lower down on my list, but with everything that's happening, it really kind of put it to the forefront for me. Well, that's lucky because so, that was my number two. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, and for the same reasons. Um, okay. You know, the music, the message, and all that. It's interesting if you contrast it with another Roger Corman film called War of the Satellites, which mm. would, would have been a double feature for me because it's the same basic plot, you know, except this time these aliens are 
taking over human bodies and trying to prevent us from going up and exploring space by putting some sort of protective barrier, I forget what it was called, over the Earth so our rockets can't leave the atmosphere. What's the interesting contrast about it is that, uh, first of all, um, one of the actors, Dick Miller, it's one of his few chances to be the actual, not lead, but the lead character, because the lead becomes an alien. The aliens have put this ultimatum out. You know, you can't get past this barrier. We are isolating you. You are in quarantine. Um, <laughs> You're in timeout. You think about what you've yes, done. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, and Dick Miller addresses the UN assembly because he they figured out a way they might be able to beat the aliens at their own game and gives an impassioned speech as to we can't let something stop our progress. Because if we give in to them, what are they going to demand of us next? And they don't even know if we're coming in peace or not. They've just isolated us. And if we don't show them that we can take whatever they give us, you know, granted, this is an invasion. There's no spaceships or anything blasting Earth, but it's just the shield. We don't stand our ground and do this. What are they going to demand next? So it's kind of an interesting contrast between the two movies. It came out during uh, Sputnik. Back then, satellite was on everybody's lips, and Roger Corman's like, all right, satellite. Who are the satellites? Go make a poster. Here, we're going to make this movie. Give us money. Do we have a script? Not yet. We'll have one in two days. And that's how it got made. I mean, he literally was selling the movie based on current events before they even had a script. <laughs> that was, yeah. which is pretty gutsy, but that's typical Roger Corman movie making. My number one, and I had no question what my number one was going to be, it's Forbidden Planet, 1956. And thank you very much. And <laughs> Did you get applause for that? It was psychic applause. Oh, and I felt oh, it. I felt it. No, and I'm not old enough to quite have seen it in the movie theater, but my, I had teachers and scoutmasters who did, and they would basically describe this as their Star Wars. This was this huge budget movie. It was MGM's really first science fiction movie. This is M friggin' G friggin' M. They're not going to waste any money. I mean, they're not going to, you know, just throw things and do it half shot. No, they were going to make this incredible movie, and it still lasts. And it helps that, you know, we curbed it off of Shakespeare and The Tempest, but they got uh, Walter Pigeon. Leslie Nielsen in, I think, his second movie, his first lead role, and his hair's not white. For I was probably 15 when I first saw it. I go, this is Star Trek. No, Star Trek is Forbidden Planet. Mm -hmm. The way that the crews work together, the way that there's officers over everything, the interaction between the crew. Roddenberry says, I took it from Forbidden Planet. I was inspired by this. And then you have Robbie. And this was the really the first presentation of a good guy robot. You weren't sure what side he was going to be on. But, you know, before, except for maybe Tobar the Great, I, I don't think that there were, and even he got reprogrammed, robots were bad. And, again, Lucas says, I based, you know, this idea of my droids on Robbie. And Robbie, you know, version of Robbie goes through an uh, outer limit, a version of him, of course, is the robot from uh, Lost in Space. There's just so much. But the thing I remember the most is, and I realize that I might 
be spoiling a 70-year-old movie, but when the, the creatures, the monsters of the id come through the force field, they didn't have a department in MGM to draw that. They got Disney to do it for them. And you see this monster, invisible monster, this, its form, that is scary today. You look in the, um, they go to the, the alien city, and you just see city going for miles and miles. The idea that, you know, we're going to have a science fiction movie, but it's not going to be cheap. It's not going to be knocked together. It's not going to be thrown together. We're going to spend some money, and we're going to make this art. It comes from Forbidden Planet. And if you don't have Forbidden Planet and still want to see, you know, what the id monster kind of looks like, and you have a copy of Matinee with John Goodman, watch as he's describing the history of storytelling in cinema. Because there is a scene in there as this animated, as he's, you know, waving his hand and this animated picture shows up on the wall that actually does look pretty much like, uh, yeah. like the id monster. And it's, it is a creepy, it is a creepy monster. Well, no, and a tie-in, I was going to say, uh, with what you said earlier and, and Matinee, I go, why is science fiction important? My example is matinee, because half of it you got the storytelling, but the other side, Ormery Cat's story, is that, that this guy is his kid during you know the Cuban Missile Crisis, and his dad's out there in the ocean in the Navy, and how does he deal with all these terrible things? Science fiction. And you know it's kind of ironic. It's right in between us and the Cuban Missile Crisis. How have I been dealing with the last... 72 hours politics, science fiction marathon. You know, that's why, and these movies are slow burn, and I get a lot of people don't like slow burn. These are slow burn, thoughtful movies that help me deal with stuff like the world. My number one, I'm not going to worry about spoiler alerts. Uh, it just squeaks in under the wire. It was released in 1968, so right under there. No reason for a spoiler alert because... You know the ending thanks to endless it, memes and... This it, almost made my list. I know what you're going to say. And, and, and endless pop culture references. It's 1968's Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Um, and I find this extremely relevant, especially today. You all know the story. Charlton Heston lands, planet full of apes. That part's fine, but as you start looking at the ape, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I don't know if he thought it was fine. He probably didn't. Neither did his uh, fellow astronauts. Um, but if you, but where it starts getting deep is as you start getting a better view of the ape government and and how it's run. You okay? Yeah, you got the gorillas. They're the soldiers. You got the orangutan. They're the leaders. You got chimpanzees. They're the intelligent ones. But what this really shows is the danger of a government using its power to control science and control knowledge. If you look at it, first of all, you know, chimpanzees are considered, you know, they're all the scientists, and yet they're considered lesser. During his trial, Charlton Heston is asked by, I think it was Dr. Zayas, you know, why are all apes created equal? And Heston goes, it appears some apes are created more equal than others, hearkening uh, back to um, Animal Farm, George Orwell. Um, but then you get to the Forbidden Zone, where it all takes place. And like I said, you've, you know how it ends. Um, if not, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to spoil it. You Does know. anybody care if he spoils Planet of the Apes? Okay. Okay, good. <laughs> um, you know, you get there, and you know that Dr. Zayas knows what's there. Yeah. He knows what's past that cave. He knows what Charlton Heston is going to find. And yet he and the other orangutans are using the power of the government to suppress such knowledge. At the end, Zira and uh, Cornelius and their assistant are arrested by Zaius and, and um, 
going to be put on trial for heresy. And this is extremely important, I think, today. We have governments, not just ours, let's be honest, it's not just our government trying to suppress information about science. There are people trying to suppress information about science or create conspiracy theories to discredit it. And this shows the danger of that. This shows to a point where the suppression can become extremely problematic and extremely dangerous to everyone. And yeah, you, you figured it out yeah, at that one. Well, it was almost on my list for that very reason. I mean, yeah, you've got the cast, the class system, the caste system going on here. But you're right. It's it's religion versus science. It's it's the government mm-hmm. playing both against each other. It's it's a good science fiction film. I mean, Rod Sterling was involved in the writing of the screenplay. The guy who did the Twilight Zone. So you know it's going to be good. Um, the, the makeup effects, the everything in there, top notch. The performances are amazing. But there's so much more going on beneath the surface with that one. Oh yeah. And even in the sequels that do take place after the 1968 soft cutoff I talked about earlier. Uh, you watch some of those, and you can see some pretty horrendous things happening. Yeah, especially Escape. Oh, that is a yeah, that's a harsh one. Well, yeah, and that's where we start getting into the 1970s science fiction realm, where things get really dangerous. If we had gone to 1972, speaking of the environment, uh, Silent Running would have been on my list. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. which again, it, in the 72, Bruce Dern plays an incredibly insane person. It just, but. It's got environmental questions that people weren't asking 50 years ago. Hey, guess what? I found the recording for Spider Baby. It it was on my backup, backup hard drive. I had forgotten that I had actually moved it to that hard drive with the intention of taking it off that hard drive and putting it onto my laptop so I can edit on my laptop the episode of Spider Baby. Uh, There is still some difficulty with it. I'm going to take a listen to it uh, probably within the next couple of days just to see how it is. There were some hard drive issues when I was recording that episode. This was before the repairs took place and the upgrades took place. And there are some moments in the conversation where my side of the recording started dropping. Hopefully it's not too bad and it's something I can work around. Fingers and tentacles crossed. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for sharing the news about the podcast, retweeting tweets, posting things on Facebook, letting people know about the podcast and what we do here. I love seeing the audience grow like we've seen the audience grow over in the Monster Kid Movie Club recently. That's been incredible. We have, as of right now, at least 60 subscribers to the channel, which is just fantastic. I am shocked. I mean, we were going to set, or we, I was going to set a little mini goal and a challenge to try to get to 50 subscribers by the end of the year. We're at 60 now. So I'm going to try to come up with something else. Stay tuned. Let me think about this. Probably next week I'll have an announcement to make about the stream and what we're doing over at the Monster Kid Movie Club, which is what we do every Saturday starting at 11 a.m. Pacific over at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. We show monster movies. We show trailers, commercials, ads, a really cool pre-show put together by Scott Morris from Disney Indiana. And more often than not, a really cool video look at Famous Monsters of Filmland put together by Kenny. It's a good time. My favorite part, though, is the chat. There's a live chat going the entire time. 
that's just fun to interact with people and make new friends and strengthen existing friendships in the chat over monster movies. Now, what's happening this week in the Monster Kid Movie Club? I don't really know yet. I'm still trying to get used to working this customer service job that has me giving, getting up at, uh, oof. Well, I have to clock in at 7 a.m., and it's not something that I'm used to. So I'm, I'm getting there, but it is uh, making it a little bit more uh, difficult to plan something. So we're going to be doing just kind of some random movies on Saturday. The only one that I know for sure is a movie called Halfway House that is from, let's see, I meant to write this down, 1944 that a new subscriber told us about in the chat. That's going to be playing at 4.30 p.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. If you haven't seen Halfway House, if you're curious about Halfway House, come and join us. If you have seen it, well, come and join us anyway. I think it's going to be a good time. And then on Tuesday, we do something similar, but it's a little bit shorter, around 3.30 or so. We normally start the program there in the same Twitch channel. We call it the Monster Kid Astronomy Club then. Tuesdays have been a little bit more up in the air than Saturday. I haven't been doing the full presentation on Tuesday because of my job situation. So, you know, really the best thing to do is to go to the Twitch channel and just follow the Twitch channel because then you'll be notified about any updates and any announcements that I make on the Twitch channel. Of course, you can also go to monsterkidradio.net because that's where you're going to find everything else you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes or even while you listen. Check it out. We have our contact information, our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Twitter, our Discord, our Reddit, our Patreon, which by next week will be updated. All sorts of great stuff over there, including our affiliate links that will take you to Amazon and allow you to shop at Amazon as normal. Maybe pick up some of the things that we've talked about here on the podcast. It helps us out because we are a Monster Kid Radio. We are a Monster Kid Radio. Of course, we're a Monster Kid Radio. We're an Amazon affiliate here on Monster Kid Radio. So every time you use one of those links to pick something up from us, and you've got to start from scratch. Don't fill up your cart, log out, log back in. You've got to start from scratch from the affiliate link. And it puts a few cents in our pocket, takes it off the top of Jeff Bezos's cut, which, I mean, let's be honest, the dude just sent Captain Kirk to space. I think he's doing okay for money. So yeah, please consider supporting us that way. Support us by sharing the podcast, supporting by liking the page and following us on Twitter. Just whatever you want to do to interact with us online, we appreciate it. I appreciate it. The Monsters in the Machine better appreciate it. Show your appreciation by letting everybody know how to get a hold of us. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. Okay, we know that's just all kind of like a gag, right? That this will work. I kid you not. I do look at the computer and scream at it every time when I'm referring to the monsters in the machine and telling him what to do. It's method podcasting. I don't know. I also don't know what's coming up next week. Maybe it'll be Spider-Baby. Maybe it'll be something else. I'm not sure. Again, the best way to find out what's coming up beforehand, the website, Facebook, and Twitter. That's where you're going to want to go to keep up to date with what we're up to here on Monster Kid Radio. Thanks again for being here. Thank you to David Heath and Chris McMillan for being part of that panel that we recorded over a year and a half ago. <laughs> 
I'll make sure there's links to their projects on the website as well. Until next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Special Forces. That is copyright 2021. Beware of Blast. They are a surf band based out of Germany. You can find them at bewareofblast.bandcamp.com. Check out the single Special Forces. There's even a music video you can watch on their Bandcamp page. You know what? I'll also play it on the stream this Saturday. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.